Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. There's a lot to share when it comes to introducing Rue Powell, my guest today. She has written copy for products that are sold in such places as Whole Foods, Target, Nordstrom, Barnes & Noble, Stop & Shop, Kroger. She's launched successful websites. She's traveled to South America, Southeast Asia, and the Middle East, writing about poverty, the refugee crisis, sex abuse, human trafficking. Rue headed up creative for a tech startup focusing on child safety, and she was on the board of The Cove, a nonprofit that serves children who have lost a parent or sibling. Last but so not least, Rue is the founder of SOSA, or Safe from Online Sex Abuse. This powerful nonprofit identifies internet locations where offenders target minors and then shares its findings with various internet crimes against children task forces throughout the United States. SOSA supports abuse survivors, spearheads child abuse prevention initiatives, and helps build technology that improves online safety. And to that end, a new discovery docu-series, Undercover Under Age, follows Rue as she IDs some of the internet's most dangerous child predators. Rue and her team of professionals collaborate with law enforcement to find those who prey on unsuspecting kids. How? Well, this 38-year-old mother of three morphs into a 15-year-old working to identify these creeps before they discover Rue is not who she appears to be. Honestly, I couldn't breathe as I watched several episodes. They're riveting and they're visceral. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's meet and get to know this passionate, committed, creative woman, Rue Powell-Full. That name makes perfect sense to me. I'm dubbing you Rue Powell-Full. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. Sandy, thank you so much for having me. What a kind intro. Well, I I always tell the truth, Rue. <laughs> let's, let's go back in time and tell me what it was when you were growing up that you wanted to be when you were growing up. Ha, actually, that's funny. Um, when I was younger, I used to eat cereal at my kitchen table. And I would read <laughs> the stories in the backs of cereal boxes. And I thought, oh, one day maybe I can be the one writing stories in the backs of cereal boxes. <laughs> and I also wanted, I wanted to be a writer. My uh, dad, who has since passed, he was a career-long writer and editor. And I've been writing in various forms for the past decade or so. So you were doing all this, quote, creative writing. And then how did that morph into the fact that you became a traveler and writing about poverty and refugees and sex abuse? How did you make that transition? That's a great question. So I started writing online back in 2010, and I had this website that ended up getting some popularity, a lot of viewers, a lot of readers. And from then on, I started writing about topics that I cared about, including race and culture. And then I was subsequently invited to see how different organizations and nonprofits and NGOs all over how they're working to fight certain societal ills. And so that's when I started writing more about current events and things that concern me and generally a lot of stuff around advocacy. And that's been human trafficking or just child wellness or the refugee crisis. And writing is certainly my 
a first love and I, I really still enjoy writing. And I find that it's been a great tool to highlight some of the things that go on in the world. And also, I very much enjoyed writing stories in the backs of cereal boxes. too. <laughs> so there's a lot of eclecticism in your life. Yeah. And I think that's one of the nice things about writing is that there are so many avenues and, and so many so many avenues to explore and different things to try. And whether it's a blog back in 2010 when blogs were big or whether it's writing articles or uh, microblogging on Instagram or, or what have you. Were you a freelancer when you were traveling to South America and Southeast Asia and writing about these topics about poverty or refugee crises or sex abuse? Yes, I was. Yes, I was freelance then. And so that must have been quite an experience for you and a real eye-opener, I bet. Yeah, it's interesting is that I was born in Asia and I, I moved here when I was younger and I became a citizen when I was a teenager. And I think that I, I'm able to see, I have a very specific vantage point, and that is someone who's grown up in the U.S. And when you're kind of put in another country and see how someone in abject poverty might raise their family or see how someone who is really in the sex work business out of necessity and how they're raising their families, I find that the different perspectives are fascinating. And I <laughs> realize how sheltered I am. And mm. I, I think a lot can be learned just from visiting another culture or looking at someone's life through their own lens. But I can't imagine how impactful that had to be to write about and to be exposed to such really intense issues. Yeah, you know, all of it is, all of it is intense. I, I do feel particularly drawn to some of it simply being an, an Asian woman, an Asian American woman, and seeing how race or seeing how cultures kind of affect how girls and women are treated in different countries. And so there's certainly an element of that too, seeing how my mom was raised or how my grandmother was raised and the different difficulties they faced and kind of seeing that firsthand when I'm interviewing someone in Southeast Asia, for example. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in New England. What a 180, huh? From Southeast Asia. <laughs> yeah, I, I was born in Hong Kong. My mom was from the Philippines. My dad is from Wales, and I was raised in New England. Wow, you're walking United Nations, aren't you, Ruth? <laughs> yeah, I had my own <laughs> meetings all by myself. <laughs> Talk about The Cove, as I mentioned in the introduction, a nonprofit that services children who have lost a parent or sibling. Talk about that organization. Yeah, the Cove is a really wonderful nonprofit. And what they do is they they really reach out to, they, they develop programs for kids who have either lost a parent or lost a sibling. And obviously when a kid goes through that, it is a life-changing, devastating event. And so to have a group of people to kind of walk with you through that is is really lovely. They have wonderful programs. They have a camp. They have after school activities. And it's a great program. I have a friend who was widowed rather young. And so her kids went through that program. And that's how I got introduced to the Cove. So I was on their board for about a year. And it was very, very fulfilling to be able to help in that in that regard. Mm -hmm. Now, let's move over to SOSA, Safe from Online Sex Abuse. As I also mentioned in the introduction, you did write about sex abuse and human trafficking. How did all of that come together 
in terms of the foundation for SOSA? Mm. So working in writing and in the creative space, I ended up running creative for a tech company. And the tech company was in the child safety space. So it was an area where I could marry some of the things that I care about the most writing, advocacy, and certainly technology. And I started a project there with my team where we were trying to explain the issue of online predation. And it's such, it seems so new. It's not something that parents necessarily understand right at the outset because I wasn't raised with a smartphone in my hand. Mm -hmm. And Mm. I wasn't raised with access, with unfettered access to the internet and other people having access to me. So we were looking for a way to really kind of explain what online predation is. And we decided to put some decoys online. And and that kind of, that turned into a project where we were able to display what goes on online when you are a minor and the people that would do you harm. I ended up writing a piece that got a lot of attention and I ended up getting some news coverage from that. And I left that company and I started to work on SOSA because that work was still really important to me. And that's right along the time that the idea of a docuseries was put on my lap. And so it's been this really interesting evolution into where we are now. Give me a time frame for this. When did you start focusing on child sex abuse and human trafficking? I started heading up creative for that tech safety company in 2017. Mm. I left in 2020 and I started doing all of this in 2020. In the meantime, I also joined a different tech company called Spectrum Labs as an advisor. And what they do is they monitor for uh, instances of sex abuse. And so what we do is we take a lot of the conversations that we have with perpetrators and we're able to kind of extrapolate data and patterns that we see with the grooming process. And we give our information or we give our findings to Spectrum and they're able to use it to better train their artificial intelligence to detect for signs of abuse and exploitation on a lot of different social platforms, whether that's a dating app or a social media app or a coloring book app for kids or a kid's gaming app. So they're doing a lot to kind of, it kind of puts the onus on companies to make their platform safer and they're doing a lot to help them do that as well. So that has become a part of what SOSA does and a part of what I do. I'm an advisor for them now and I really appreciate, I really appreciate the work they're doing. So I kind of get to marry all of those things, right? Still using technology to help keep kids safe online and running SOSA. Were you overwhelmed by the ubiquity of the problem early on? Did that just completely blow your mind? There was a part of me that always had this understanding of it because of the space that I worked in, but it's very different to kind of observe. It's a very different thing (laughs) to observe numbers, right? Numbers are just, when you see the statistics, numbers kind of lack feeling. They lack a story. And then all of a sudden you're playing the role of either a teenage girl or an 11 year old girl or whatever, a minor. And you're seeing the messages come in and you see the volume and you see the intensity of them. And it it is overwhelming. It is disconcerting. And I think there's no amount of there's no amount of statistics or stories that really help you 
that prepare you for experiencing it firsthand? You know, I my career was spent in news. And it, after a while, I mean, when you're just doing story after story, not that you get hardened to it, but it's it it's just so overwhelming that it just seems almost like de rigueur, you know? I, I, I'm not being dismissive, but it's it's everywhere and it's endless. Yes, I mean, I... I I don't mean to be crass about it, but I'm like, these perpetrators are 10 a penny. They're everywhere. Give me your phone and I can find you some objectionable material on Instagram or some other social media app where a lot of kids are in, in 30 seconds, 30 seconds or less. I'm sure we could find something. The goal with SOSA isn't to locate perpetrators one by one. And, and, and hope that they are pursued by law enforcement and, and subsequently are no longer online. That That's a good thing. That is a good thing when that happens. But that's taking things down. That's like throwing a starfish back into the ocean one by one. The goal really is to empower an entire society to be able to combat the ubiquity of online sex abuse and predation together. And that looks like a number of different things, right? That looks like we we talk to high schoolers, we talk to middle schoolers, and we do a lot of empathy-led education because a lot of this stuff results in shame and they're afraid to talk to someone. We talk to parents and caregivers and teachers. We also are advocating for better resources for Internet Crimes Against Children task forces. And we would love to see better and broader safety legislation, like raising the age of consent in some states from 16 to 18, or having grooming statutes in all 50 states, as opposed to just some of them. Yeah, it's just overwhelming. Rue, so I'm watching the first of several episodes on the Discovery Plus documentary series that's following you as a 15-year-old. You need to take us through how that all happened and how how did that impact you? What was your initial response or reaction when that was first presented to you about, hey, we've got we've got a role for you. We've got a role of a lifetime for you. <laughs> well, it's interesting is that um, the owner of the production company, we had a couple meetings and I was feeling uncertain. And he said, you've written about this and you've reached so many people. Imagine reaching 10 times more every single week, all of these people hearing your message, hearing what you have to say about sex abuse and exploitation. And that that's the goal, right? Like I know the score there. It's to be able to 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 raise awareness and to educate because this is new and people don't quite understand the nuance of it. And like we all knew we were all told be careful walking home from school because someone could grab you in the 7-Eleven right, and throw right. you in a trunk and drive you right. off. We all knew about stranger danger or don't help a stranger find their puppy. But that's stuff that we all knew growing up. That's stuff that parents could teach. My parents' main concern was me walking home from school or whether or not I was staying out past curfew. This, the internet, which I love, technology, which I love, has given us so much, but it's also given perpetrators another avenue with which to abuse children. Yeah, carte blanche. Yeah, and so I, my kids have phones, and sometimes people are, are shocked to hear that, but our phones give us access to content creators and art and news, and we're able to FaceTime relatives in another country. And 
I do think technology is great. I use technology to learn how to make an origami crane or mm-hmm. make a recipe or learn about what's going on in Yemen. But we also have to consider the potential dangers. And that's why when the idea of this docuseries was brought to me, as hesitant as I was, I realized that this could be a really powerful way to help engage with parents and caregivers and teachers and and teens. Like my hope is that teens and parents watch this show together and more awareness is raised. And frankly, on the other end of it, I'm hoping that a would-be perpetrator would watch the show and say, hey, I recognize that I have the inclination to harm a child. I don't want to do that because I don't want to harm a kid or I don't want to go to jail or a variety of things. And they go get help before they ever commit a crime, before they ever break the law. The cynicism jumps out at me like, do they really give a shit about that, Rue? Well, I think that sometimes, you know, no one is wholly good or wholly evil. And when I am in these relationships with these perpetrators, sometimes it's for a month or longer and I'm communicating with them. And of course there are glimmers of humanity. And there are a lot of times that I'm sad because I'm like, I I, I think there are these wonderful (laughs) attributes about you truly, but you are also abusing children online. And I I think about that, you know, no one being wholly good or, or wholly evil. It's like, we're, we're, we're layered people. So do I think that there's a path to rehabilitation? Yes. If nothing else, there's a path to prevention, right? If nothing else for their own self-preservation, even if it's just, I don't want to go to jail, so I'm not going to do this anymore. Great. I kind of hope that everyone, I, I, I kind of hope that everyone who watches undercover underage thinks, shoot, maybe, maybe the kid I'm talking to is actually a nonprofit or a police officer or a detective. And that's my greatest hope for the docuseries is that it really touches on all of these different aspects that the aggregate of which affects sex abuse and exploitation. So give me more of a sense of how this was born. Whose idea was it that you are going to portray a teenager and also share with us your team who works with you in nabbing some of these folk. Yeah, well, that the, the, the initial idea came from simply running creative at this company and, and thinking about how we can explain how predation works online. And that was kind of born out of that desire, right? So that happened in that that happened, you know, a couple years back when I was working for that tech company. Right um, now, Sosa kind of has a rolling team because we don't do these. We I can't be a decoy 365 days out of the year. You know, we all take. We need to do these in in sprints, right? Whether that's a week or two weeks or a month or two months, just because it's not tenable to do <laughs> year round, not logistically, and certainly not for everyone's mental health. On the team that you'll see in the docuseries, you'll see Matt, who is our visuals lead, and he's great. He's the one who is responsible from turning me from 38 to a teenager. And he uses so many tricks and tips, and he's a really incredible photographer and editor. So he's been really, um, he's been indispensable <laughs> in that way. Mm-hmm. Shelby, she and I had worked together ages ago. And Shelby is really great at social media and she understands 
culture. And that's part of what we have to do is we have to understand teenage culture and language and the things that they say and do. And she will do a lot of the communication with ACMs. ACM is a acronym we use for adults contacting minor. That's how we refer to anyone who's reaching out to one of our decoys as an adult contacting a minor. So she will speak with the ACMs and she has some knowledge of different niche internet um, internet culture that I don't. So for example, if we're talking to someone who knows a lot about anime, uh, Shelby handles that because I know nothing about anime or know okay, nothing about okay. anime. Mm-hmm. Kelly, who I've also worked with long before Sosa, she's head of research. And she's the kind of person where we'll be sitting there and we'll say, okay, we have a first name and maybe a location. And we know that this person likes XYZ. And by the way, he's a Pisces. And she'll just, you know, head down, getting into it, trying to find out information. She's really great at that. And then we have Avalon, who is our story developer. And she's a writer. And when we put a decoy online, we can't just toss a photo up there and hope for the best. She really creates very layered characters. Because if you think about it, a teenager isn't just a name and a photo. They have a social circle. They have friends, Mm -hmm. they have hobbies, they've got, you know, families, they have an astrological sign, they have a sport that they like to play. And so she will develop that. And Kelly will help research on that too, because we need to know when one decoy gets out of school. So if I'm on the phone and someone says, hey, what time do you get out of school? I know I get out of school at 1.53 because that's the time that school gets out. So she gets us really prepared for that. We, we also have a lot of support. We've got research support and admin support that you'll see on Undercover Underage as well. But that's kind of the core five. Where did the money come from? to get Sosa off the ground? Sosa has largely been self-funded. And by that, I mean, it really takes a desk and a phone. And this is something that I, I can do by myself, but I don't want to do by myself. So we established Sosa and we are attempting certainly to raise money to make all of our work tenable. And it is a lot more expensive to put decoys online than it is to speak at a a high school, for example. Sure, sure. Um, So there are certain things that when we are low on resources, we can at least turn our attention to another part of the work that we do. When you are portraying a teenager, what is happening to you Are you frightened? Are you exhausted? Why was this so visceral to me? I think people have a reaction because it seems like whether or not I'm actually, you know, 38 or 14, it it seems like you are being shown what a teenager goes through online. And when I am in that role, I have to very much focus on playing the role of a teenager. And there are a hundred things going through my head, certainly, whether it's uh, picking up a clue, something that an ACM said, or thinking about something that I need to bring up. So maybe he'll give me more information on location or age. And when you're in it, or when I'm in it, I don't have the luxury of breaking character. Right. Right. I, I can't, I can't risk it. We work so hard to create these decoys. To have to burn one of them is just days and days of work gone. And a lot of times we're talking to some people that are incredibly dangerous and the risk is too high. And so if that means I have back sweat the entire time, then (laughs) I have back sweat the entire time. Is there a tie that binds 
these predators that you've come to understand, that you've been exposed to, no pun intended? Is there a thread here? No, I don't believe so. Mm. I mean, the the perpetrators we see, the ACMs we see come from all walks of life. I mean, to the point where I think people are surprised by it because we all kind of think of these perpetrators as something that you'd see on I don't know, like NCIS, you know, a, a, uh, an evil... Well, the scum of the earth. Nothing's lower than pond scum than these guys. Well, and, and we have this visual in their in our heads about them, but some, some of these men are family men or they've got great jobs. They're conventionally attractive. You would smile at them in Whole Foods. And some of these men work their nine to five. They mm-hmm. come home, mm-hmm. have dinner with their kids, help with homework, tuck them in bed, and then go online and look for a kid to abuse. And it is not uh, specific to any age or socioeconomic status or demographic or, you know, location. It is truly, I could not give you one specific profile. This is not an everyman situation. There are just, they they come from all different walks of life, which... Kind of, you know, when we're our most cynical, we're on a train, kind of our eyes darting around wondering if any of them are actually perpetrators too, or if the nice person that's been opening the door for me at Starbucks is actually going online and and looking for CSAM, you know, child sex abuse material. Mm -hmm. Was there any time where you were terrified in terms of meeting these men? Oh, I like to think I have this baseline of being scared, <laughs> whether it's for a phone call or a video call or a meet or or any of it, because it feels like so much is on the line. And at that point, we know what they're capable of. And we just, I just don't want to, I just don't want to fail. And that's probably the scariest moment, you know, even where even if it's something as simple as getting on a video call or trying to be a believable teenager, it's scary because we don't want to fail. How often did you meet any of these guys in person? Well, so for the most part, we did not actually meet anyone. We would we would stage meets, we would mm-hmm. create meets, and then we would be no-shows. But we would be looking to see if we could ID them or, or get a license plate or figure out who they right. are. Figure out right. if they indeed, we're going to show up. But did I sit and have lunch with anyone? No, certainly not. I have, you'll see in episode two, that I was, I was on site when there was an arrest. And that certainly is, you know, just because you, you don't know what's going to happen. And that's definitely... Um, uh, panic-inducing. But as far as being in close proximity to these ACMs, that's not something that we we did, no. How many guys did law enforcement nab, would you say, in terms of the work that you've done? This is a good question. And I think the answer is probably going to be just a little bit unsexy. And the answer is, when we are done collecting our evidence, we send it over to law enforcement, and for the most part, that is where our time on that case ends. We move on to the next thing. And the reason why is because sometimes law enforcement will take our evidence and they will, they will start their own independent investigation. And sometimes law enforcement will take our evidence and actually use it for their investigation, use it for an arrest. 
And sometimes we have to, you know, be involved with law enforcement after that, where let's say a detective is logged in the same time that I am and we're watching messages come in and we're communicating about that. But perpetrators are all over. So even if I'm working closely with Orlando police, if there is a perpetrator in Wyoming, they take all that information and they send it over to law enforcement in Wyoming. And there's Mm. not necessarily a game of telephone where everyone gets updated. That's just not what happens. Um, I feel like that would take a lot of time and they're already under-resourced. So there are times where we don't know. One, there are times where we never know how something shakes out. Two, there are times where we read about it in the paper. And and three, there are times where we do know. So I could not give you a number. I couldn't begin to try giving you a number because I simply, I simply don't know the answer to that. How has this impacted your life? How is it that you can go from being a 15-year-old to going home and being with your three daughters? Ooh, it is difficult. And um, I try to keep things very separate. So for example, I am in my office right now talking to you and I do not have a picture drawn by one of them or a photo of them. I have nothing. Mm -hmm. I have Mm -hmm. nothing from home in here because I need to keep things separated. I don't want to be working on a case and looking at my kids at the same time, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. When I go home, when I cross the threshold, I am, I'm mom. And that's, that's who I am. So I, I like to keep it really separate in that regard. They, they, they do know what I do, or at least they know a high level of it. Mm-hmm. And I, it's emotionally taxing, but I try to put systems in place to make it bearable. Are you doing things separate from SOSA? Are you still freelance writing? Are there still other areas that interest you? Or is this a kind of, and I use the term in quotes, 24-7? This is what I'm doing now. And it looks like, it can look like a lot of different things, whether it's talking to parents or having one-on-one sessions with an 11-year-old or speaking at a school or talking to tech companies about making their platform safer or sharing patterns that people use when they're trying to reach out to teenagers, patterns in speech, or identifying pockets of the internet where a lot of them gather and sharing that information. So everything's at least SOSA adjacent. (laughs) At the risk, again, of deifying you, do you realize the potency of what you're doing? You know, obviously, this is so important to me. It's so important to me. And I think that the biggest thing that keeps me going is knowing that there are kids that deal with this. And because it's not really talked about, it's not really understood because they feel like maybe they don't have the right to feel sad or scared because nobody ever put hands on them. Mm. They were just abused via their phone. They're quiet about it. They kind of sit in shame. They're scared to tell someone. They're afraid that someone's going to blame them. You know, I sexted back or I, I sent this photo. And the thought of all of these kids dealing with that alone is probably the thing that drives me the most. And like when I talk to kids, I, I, I talk a lot about how being a victim of abuse is never their fault. And there are times where people want to say, oh, well, she posted a photo of herself in her swimsuit on Instagram. Yeah, so what? Kids do that. I do that, you know, and it doesn't mean that they should be open to abuse. And so I feel really strongly about sharing that these adults are manipulative and tricky And for most of them, it's not their first rodeo. They've got lines that they use and they're believable and charming and it's never a victim's fault. And so it's so easy to blame the victim. I mean, we've made that an art form. 
Absolutely. You know, what was she wearing? Well, why was she walking down there? Well, you know, and it's it's ad nauseum at this point. And so I hope it does have an impact in the way, at the very least, at the very least, in a way that as a society, our, our communities can step up and at least be there for a kid if something happens. Have you seen a postscript to this series? Is there more that you would like to do in terms of getting the word out there on a grander scale? Um, what, would, what do you mean? Like, what would that look like in your mind? Well, I'm not sure. Of letting people really know what's going on, and maybe there's a lot of people whose heads are in the sand, whether it's parents or educators or law enforcement, whomever. Yeah, I hope that Undercover Underage is a catalyst for a lot of things, whether it's widespread education in schools or education for parents or you know other caregivers or even paths to rehabilitation for would-be predators. I hope that this is just the jumping off point. That would be the best thing that could come from this. And what do you see you yourself doing in the future? I don't know. You know, at some point, I certainly age out of this, right? <laughs> at some point, there's at some point there is there are not enough digital tricks in the world. But I hope that I can still be a part of combating sex abuse and exploitation, whether that's advocating, whether that's just talking or writing or or something else. But it is it is a something that is I, I feel really strongly about. And if I pass the torch to someone else someday, that's that's fine too. Have the schools for the most part been receptive and have you traveled around the country talking about this issue or are you more focused in New England? The schools have been receptive. It's been difficult because of the pandemic. Pandemic, of course. Where a lot of, of schools course. are not inviting people in. I've done some stuff digitally I do a lot of one-on-ones with kids where a parent will say, hey, can you talk to my kid? This happened on this platform. And we'll either Zoom or if it's a place that we meet in person, we can go get a smoothie and talk. And I think in in those cases, it's always better coming from someone else's mom than your own. Um, So so there is some of that. And I, I do hope, especially as fingers crossed, the pandemic comes to an end that we're able to travel and, and host workshops and talk to kids and talk to families. That would be, that'd be great. That would be ideal. You optimistic that we can kind of get the upper hand on this hideous, hideous issue? Oh, I'm always optimistic, probably to the point of uh, naivete. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, always, I always hope that um, I love an underdog story. And I feel like in this case, society is the underdog because uh, the internet is so so swift and fast and perpetrators are, there are so many of them. But I think that the aggregate amount of all of our efforts, it's going to make a real dent. Are the Facebooks and the other organizations been fairly receptive to you and helpful? Well, that's where Spectrum comes in. So Spectrum, you know, I'm an advisor at Spectrum and I'm working with Spectrum to talk about trust and safety issues. And so we'll host workshops where trust and safety teams from these different companies, these different social media platforms and gaming platforms and, and other kinds of apps will come on and we're able to discuss the the things that happen or, or do happen and, and signs of it and what we can all be doing better to make those platforms safer. So those are the kind of conversations that we're having on the, the social media end of it. Wouldn't it be wonderful for us to be able to put you out of work? I would love that. I would love, I would, I would be fine being a golden girl 
and, you know, <laughs> sipping iced tea out on a lanai somewhere, that would be fine. I could do something else. I could, I can start writing haikus or sonnets. Fine by me. <laughs> well, Rue, listen, I'm going to say it again because I was so proud of the fact that I introduced you as Rue Powellful because <laughs> it it's a potency and it's a commitment and it is a public service that just can't be dismissed. You should, um, <laughs> yeah, you should be deified, and so should Sosa. What an important organization. We need more Rue Powell fools. Well, thank you so much. That is incredibly kind and incredibly generous of you to say. Well, kind, I don't know. I'd like to think that I speak the truth more often than not, but it's been a real pleasure to meet and get to know you. And I ask that if there's any time and any point that you'd like to come back and share some more about what your life and your passions are, we'd love to have you. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure completely. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.